0: Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean? Get ready for the show. In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin how's it going everybody welcome to the third episode of the think cap podcast my name is kevin and it is my pleasure to be your host some of you may know me from my weekly trivia nights that i host for those of you who do not i have been hosting trivia nights for about the past two years um, due to the covid shutdown i've decided to start a podcast to give anyone wanting some extra trivia content and outlet to listen to until we are all able to be together again at our local Pub Trivia contests. My goal is that even when we were all back to normal, ThinkCap will become your go-to podcast to supplement your trivia knowledge to help you learn a little bit more or to help you impress your friends or coworkers or anyone else you may be sharing information with. So let me go over how this podcast is going to work. At the beginning of the show, I will pose a couple of trivia questions to you and give you a few moments to think of your answers. Then I will go through each question one by one and give you the answer and the history or data or even just some fun facts behind the answer. So this isn't your standard trivia outfit that just gives you a question and an answer. I'm gonna be giving you a quick breakdown that will hopefully satisfy all your curious minds out there while also hopefully entertaining you with my banter. My hope is that by listening to ThinkCap, you will be able to gain knowledge about not just a single question, but about different details surrounding that question. I consider myself a general trivia show, so you never know what you're going to get. So with that being said, let me once again welcome you to the ThinkCap Trivia Podcast, and let's get this show started. So, like I said before, I've got a couple of different questions for you for this podcast. And what I'm going to do is read each question for you, give you a couple moments to think about your answer. And then I'm going to go through and break down each question one by one. Again, the show is a general trivia show, so you will be getting a variety of different topics. So sit back, relax, and let me get these questions going for you. Question number one. Proudly toting the title of America's Oldest Brewery, Yingling was founded in what year? One more time. Proudly toting the title of America's Oldest Brewery, Yingling was founded in what year? Question number two. In what film did moviegoers meet Chief of Police Martin Brody? Once again, in what film did moviegoers meet Chief of Police, Martin Brody? Question number three. What country has the smallest population? Once again, what country has the smallest population? Question number four. Bill Watterson became famous for being the author and artist behind what famous comic strip? Once again, Bill Watterson became famous for being the author and artist behind what famous comic strip? Question 5. Who was the shortest player to ever lead the NBA in rebounding over the course of an entire season? One more time, who was the shortest NBA player to ever lead the league in rebounding over the course of an entire season? Question number six, who is the main character of Nintendo's 1994 role-playing game, Earthbound? Once again, who is the main character of Nintendo's 1994 role-playing game, earthbound. Question seven. When Johnny Appleseed traversed the eastern United States planting his seeds, what product were those apples intended to be used for? One more time. When Johnny Appleseed traversed the eastern United States planting his seeds, what product were those apples intended to be used for? Question eight, what does LED stand for? One more time, what does LED stand for? Question number nine, when power transmission systems were being developed in the 1880s, Thomas Edison was known to be an advocate of direct current. Conversely, who was the biggest advocate Of using alternating current once again when power transmission systems were being developed in the 1880s Thomas Edison was known to be an advocate of direct current conversely who was the biggest advocate of using alternating current question number 10 our last question what group launched and participated in the Freedom Rides in 1961. One more time, what was the name of the group that launched and participated in the Freedom Rides in 1961? All right, so now that I have read all of your questions for you and I've given you a couple moments to think about them, I'm gonna go through, read each question one more time for you and then after reading it, I will give you the answer. And some information behind that answer so here we go with question number one the question was proudly toting the title of america's oldest brewery yingling was founded in what year and your correct answer is 1829 1829 is the right answer german brewer david yingling immigrated to the united states from germany in 1828 Being that he already had experience brewing beer, he decided to open a brewing company in his new town of Pottsville, Pennsylvania. He originally named his company Eagle Brewery, which was located on Center Street in Pottsville until 1831. It was in that year that his brewery burnt down and he was forced to open up a new building location. The second location though that he opened is still the same place that Yingling as we know it operates from this day. The reopened brewery was named to DG Yingling and Son, and the bald eagle imagery was maintained as the company's official logo. Now this company was started in 1829, but what did they do during the prohibition? How did they stay open? And the answer is actually multiple ways. First, they stopped producing beer, alcoholic beer, instead opting for near beers, which have an ABV of 0.5% or lower. Their three near-beer flavors were named Yingling Special, Yingling Potor, and Yingling Juvo were their near-beers. In addition to this, Yingling started producing ice cream to maintain its profits, and the company's third operation during this time was opening up dance halls in Philly and New York City. Now once Prohibition ended, Yingling crafted a new beer called the Winner Beer, and Get this, they sent a truckload, a whole truckload of the beverage down to Washington DC to President Roosevelt in the White House to share their thanks to him of uh, ending prohibition. Finally, Yingling introduced their famous lager in 1987. They've had many successful years. Their lager has since become their flagship brew and is now synonymous with the Yingling brand and we continue to enjoy their beer to this day question number two in what film did moviegoers meet chief of police martin brody and your correct answer is jaws jaws is your right answer and jaws was a 1975 thriller directed by steven spielberg i promise i'm not trying to do steven spielberg movies only but so far the first two have been it was directed by spielberg and it's toted by some critics as one of the greatest films in cinematic history the movie was based off a novel of the same name which was released the year prior in the movie and the book a man eating great white ravages a summer resort town which prompts chief of police Martin Brody, a marine biologist, and a professional shark hunter to attempt to hunt the great white which was responsible for the attacks. The film was shot at Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Jaws was the first major film to be shot on the ocean and, as a result, the crew ran into many difficulties during production. One large issue was the continuous malfunctioning of their large robotic shark. The shark itself was affectionately named Bruce by Spielberg, and although it was robotic, the plot of the movie and the shots of the shark were absolutely bone-chilling. The fear of the unknown, especially giant man-eating monsters, dwelling in the water of our favorite beach vacation spots was ingrained in the psyches of moviegoers all over the world. Humans are simply enthralled by sharks, who are nearly perfect predators. In addition to the sequels of Jaws itself, there have been dozens and dozens of successful horror films based around sharks. Since the release of Jaws, and perpetuated by those other films, marine conservationists have been constantly fighting public perception of sharks, namely great whites. They hope to change perception that sharks are not man-eating beasts that need to be feared. Popular marketing tactics such as Discovery Channel's Shark Week have attempted to teach people about sharks with the hopes of teaching that sharks are simply fascinating creatures that, again, should be revered, not feared. Even yet, I think I can firmly say that I am not the only person who would much rather see a shark on a documentary and not a dorsal fin swimming near me in the ocean. Okay, and question number three was... What country has the smallest population? Your right answer is Vatican City. Yes, Vatican City is its own country and it happens to be quite small. It only covers about 100 acres of land or approximately one eighth the size of New York City's Central Park. Vatican City officially became its own country on February 11th of 1929 when it split apart from Italy until 1870 the pope would hold power over regions surrounding the vatican known as papal states it was in that year that the italian government claimed responsibility for pretty much all of the land outside of vatican city after a 60-year dispute between the vatican's leadership and the italian government an accord was struck which made vatican city its own independent nation while paying the church 92 million dollars which translates to more than $1 in today's money, for ownership of the Papal States. Now, Vatican City functions as a monarchy, with the Pope residing as the country's chief official. As of 2019, the country has only 825 residents, making it by far the smallest country on earth. Even so, the Vatican remains the spiritual center for... Some 1.2 billion followers of the Catholic Church who regularly make pilgrimage to the city to worship and take in the many historic and religious relics which reside in the world's smallest country. Question number four was, Bill Watterson became famous for being the author and artist behind what famous comic strip? And your correct answer is Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes is the right answer. Watterson was initially inspired to become a cartoonist by the work of Cincinnati Inquirer political cartoonist Jim Boardman, who currently draws the comic strip Zitz. Some of you may know that one, it's uh, another popular comic strip. After working at a small advertising agency and working as a freelance artist, his prized work, Calvin and Hobbes, was released on November 18th of 1985. Watterson lives by the personal mantra, It's surprising how hard we'll work when the work is done for just ourselves. Let me say that again. It's surprising how hard we'll work when the work is done for just ourselves. His statement definitely rings true. If you work hard and you work for yourself, you will achieve personal fulfillment. Many of his personal beliefs, ideologies, and life experiences are sprinkled throughout the comic strip, which follows the humorous adventures of a six-year-old boy and his stuffed tiger. Now, Hobbes' character, the stuffed tiger, was based off of Watterson's pet cat named Sprite in both looks and at times personality. Although whimsical on the surface, the comic teaches some great lessons and shares life philosophies that are extremely well thought out. Calvin and Hobbes was one of my favorite comic strips to read growing up and I highly recommend looking into Mr. Watterson's work if you are looking for some light yet thought provoking entertainment that is considered by many critics as the last great newspaper comic. And question number five, question number five was who was the shortest player to ever lead the NBA in rebounding over the course of an entire season? And your correct answer is Charles Barkley. Yes, Charles Barkley He's listed at 6'6", but if you ask him and others, people he played against, he actually stands at just about 6'4". Despite being a very undersized power forward, Sir Charles was one of the best rebounders and players of his generation. In fact, despite his size, he averaged more than 10 rebounds in every single season of his career outside of his rookie year. Over the course of his entire career, he averaged 11.7 rebounds per game. Now his rebounding prowess is pretty remarkable even if you break it down even further no player who is 6 foot 2 or lower has ever averaged more than 10 rebounds in a season ever it's never happened Russell Westbrook listed at 6 foot 3 is the shortest to average 10 or more boards in a season Cliff Hagan did it with the Hawks in 1960 at 6 foot 4 And Johnny Green did it with the Cincinnati Royals in 1970 at 6'5". Again, these are just their listed heights, which tend to be inaccurate in the NBA. But apparently they are going to fix that system and use true heights in 2021. So um, if that is the case, it'll be interesting to see uh, the differences between uh, listed heights and accurate heights. But I digress. What I was saying was the next shortest on the list here of uh, those players... Using listed heights is still Charles Barkley standing at his re- reported listed height of six foot six inches. So it's pretty remarkable. Even if he uh, is considered six foot six, not six foot four, he's still right there at the top of the list of shortest NBA players to be great rebounders the year that Barkley led the league in rebounding was the 1986-1987 season, where he averaged 14, a remarkable 14.6 boards per game for the Philadelphia 76ers. So that's another fun piece. I know, (laughs) based on his current size, um, a lot of people always picture Charles Barkley as being this huge, tall bruiser, and I guess compared to the average man, he is very tall, but compared to his NBA peers, he was actually quite undersized and he's almost forgotten about as one of the greatest players of his generation because of his lack of championships. But overall, it's completely accurate to say that he was one of the best rebounders to ever play the game. I think there was a quote he said one time that pretty much someone asked him what it was, what was the key to being a good rebounder? And he said, the key I've got a technique. It's called just go get the damn ball. Alright, question number six. Question number six was Who is the main character of Nintendo's 1994 role playing game Earthbound? And your correct answer is Ness. Ness is the right answer. If you're like me, you were most likely introduced to the character of Ness by the Super Smash Bros. series. Ness has been a member of every single installment of the franchise, with fans either hating or loving Ness's ability to spam his famous PK Thunder and PK Fire attacks. The game Earthbound, though, was released, like I said, in 1994 for the Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES. The game takes place in a city called Eagleland that is themed around an idiosyncratic portrayal of American and Western culture. It has many satirical components dispersed throughout it, and even was advertised in the United States using the slogan, quote, This Game Stinks. Now, this didn't play as well as the marketers had hoped, believe it or not. And overall, the game did not do as well as anticipated in America for multiple reasons. However, upon the release of Super Smash Bros. in 1999, curiosity about Ness's character spurned interest in his origin games since then the 2000s have been much more successful for Ness's world due to a huge push from fans of the franchise earthbound was re-released for the wii u console in 2013 and most recently earthbound was resurfaced in nintendo's 2017 release of the super nes classic edition which included earthbound as one of its playable games all right question number seven now The question was, when Johnny Appleseed traversed the eastern United States planting his seeds, what product were these apples intended to be used for? And your correct answer is alcoholic cider. Hard cider is the right answer. You know, in American folklore, they tell us that Johnny Appleseed was a carefree traveler that wore overalls and a pot on his head spreading Appleseeds about haphazardly as he traveled west from Massachusetts. And believe it or not, there is some truth to the tale, but it is actually much more savvy and calculated than the legends would otherwise tell you. Johnny Appleseed was the nickname of a man named John Chapman from Springfield, Massachusetts. In 1792, Congress donated 100,000 acres of land to the Ohio Company of Associates as a way to encourage trade among settlers and to keep Native Americans off the land. The company offered 100 acres to anyone who was willing to settle the land and plant 50 apple trees on the land. Now, apple trees do not bear fruit for about 10 years, so the planting and nurturing of the plants represented a commitment to the land that they would inhabit. Enter old Johnny Chapman and his savvy business plan. He decided that he would travel west and claim as many plots of land as he could. His apple seed planting was rather meticulous. He would always try and stay ahead of the next hot spot that would be settled, and protected his claims with barbed wire to keep out intruders. Then, he would essentially flip the land and make a profit off of his early haste. However, as stated in the trivia answer, the apple seeds were not for baking pies or eating, but for making cider. In early America, hard cider was actually one of the most common alcoholic beverages that was enjoyed by immigrants. It was much easier to make and tended to be much more sanitary than other drinks such as beer that require water that uh, had sanitation issues at the time. Now, eventually, beer would become king in America for multiple reasons that we're not going to get into right now, but yeah, at the time, ciders were the beverage of choice. And, actually, Chapman's religion prohibited causing suffering to any plants or animals in any fashion. As such, he was unable to graft trees together to create hybrids that taste sweeter and have nicer textures than what wild apples have. Most of the apples we know today are indeed hybrids that were developed in this way. The apples that Chapman made were bitter in taste, but were fantastic for fermenting cider. All in all, it is true that Johnny Appleseed planted hundreds and hundreds of apple trees. And to this day, there is actually only one left standing. One single tree that Chapman planted is still alive in a small town called Nova, Ohio. It's not a huge tourist attraction but if you can manage to find it it's not heavily publicized it would be a truly unique experience to connect you a little deeper to some classical american folklore and question number eight the question was what does led stand for and your correct answer is light emitting diode light emitting diode would be an led LEDs are semiconductor light sources that illuminate when current flows through them. The color of the light is determined by the energy required for electrons to cross the quantum energy band gap of the semiconductors. Electroluminescence was first discovered in 1907 by British scientist H.J. Hound. As the phenomenon was studied and refined over time, Scientists eventually figured out how to control the lights and what techniques for creating electronic light worked best. Early infrared lights were first used in 1962, where most emitted low-intensity infrared light, but as LED technology has developed, they've led to many innovations and have distinct advantages over traditional incandescent lights. They use significantly less energy, last much longer, and are more robust to various conditions, and are more compact, and can be changed very quickly and easily. They are There are tons of benefits of LED lights. And LED science is a fascinating concept that can be as simple or as complex if you wanna make it. But for now, I'm gonna forego more detail and move on to our second straight electrical question, which is question number nine. And the question was, when power transmission systems were being developed in the 1880s, Thomas Edison was known to be an advocate of direct current. Conversely, who was the biggest advocate of using alternating current? And your correct answer is Nikola Tesla. And while the technical principles of each method can be quite difficult to grasp, to put it simply, Edison preferred direct current because it had a couple advantages over alternating current. It is easier to store, DC motors can simply have alternating speeds, which can be advantageous in a variety of situations, which uh, is not as simple with alternating current. But conversely, alternating current can change voltages rather easily using a transformer, which DC cannot, and it's much easier to transport over long distances, which helped support Tesla's side now edison not wanting to lose the royalties he was earning from his direct current patents began a campaign to discredit alternating current he spread misinformation saying that alternating current was more dangerous than direct even going so far as to publicly electrocute stray animals using alternating current to prove his point this came to a head when edison's company rather infamously organized and filmed the electrocution of Topsy the Elephant at Coney Island in 1903. Now, the battle between the two, which started, like I said, the late 1880s, would become known as the War of the Currents, and it really is a fascinating revolutionary time in history, and it certainly paved the way for how we view the and use electrical systems even to this day. All right, and that brings us to question number 10, which is going to be our last question of the podcast. That question was, what group launched and participated in the Freedom Rides in 1961? And your correct answer is the Congress of Racial Equality, or C-O-R-E, CORE. CORE is the right answer. And CORE was founded in 1942 by an interracial group of students in Chicago. It was created using the vision of nonviolent yet direct action to force the country's hand in America's civil rights struggle during the mid-1900s. In the last episode, I spoke about Gandhi's successful use of nonviolent protest. And in fact, the founders of CORE were largely influenced by Gandhi's tactics. Early in the group's lifetime, they staged sit-ins in unintegrated Chicago businesses, such as restaurants, where black folks were not allowed to eat they forced the hand of business owners, made them uncomfortable, and ultimately succeeded in their quest to integrate businesses in their community, a necessary first step on the road to civil equality. In 1947, CORE organized an integrated bus ride through the Upper South in order to test the previous year's Supreme Court ruling. Uh, that, that one was Morgan versus Virginia, and it made segregation in interstate travel illegal. So they were kind of going to go test that out, uh, see how serious the ruling was um, in those states. And they were met with minimal violence, although a couple of the protesters were arrested and two of them were actually sentenced to work a chain gang in North Carolina. The trip would be known as the Journey of Reconciliation and would act as a precursor to the Freedom Rides of 1961. Now the goal of the Freedom Rides was to challenge segregation on interstate buses and bus terminals. This was, again, to test a new court ruling, this time Boynton v. Virginia, which stated that segregation in the facilities provided for interstate travelers, such as bus terminals, restaurants, and restrooms, was also unconstitutional. On the 4th of May, two buses full of activists departed Washington, D.C., en route to New Orleans. The group made it all the way to South Carolina before they encountered any violence. There, two men were beaten when they used a whites-only restroom, which was covered by the media, and it brought the Freedom Rides to national attention. The rides continued on to Anniston, Alabama, where they were met by a mob of over 100 people. Now, in this town, authorities had promised the KKK that they would not make any arrests in any actions against the Freedom Riders. One of the buses was firebombed, which forced its passengers to exit into the angry mob. The violence continued at the Birmingham Terminal, where once again the police force offered no protection. Although the violence garnered national media attention, the series of attacks prompted Corps to end the campaign, and the riders flew to New Orleans, bringing an end to the first Freedom Rides of the 1960s. Now, there would be more Freedom Rides with similar arrests and violence seen on many, but in the end, the courage in the face of outright hatred helped lead to federal investigation which legally ended segregation on buses and trains in public facilities, therefore marking the Freedom Rides as a success. And, even though we still to this day have a lot of work to do uh, to bring about true civil equality, Without the leadership of some of those initial core members that just stood up to that outright violence and hatred um, all the way back, you know what, I, I say all the way back, it really wasn't that long ago, but without their leadership, we wouldn't even be as far as we are today. All right, and once again, that brings us to the end of our show. If you have made it this far, I thank you for hanging out with me, and I hope that you learned a little bit. I will be releasing podcasts every week from here on out. So in order to stay in tune with what I am releasing, you can follow ThinkCap, T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram. Um, Follow on Facebook with the same name or even listen on YouTube. I'm working on getting these podcasts up on YouTube. There will be links to each streaming platform where the show will be available in addition to some fun content posted every couple of days to keep you thinking on those social media sites. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review, like, subscribe, or follow if you can. Any feedback from you guys helps me out tremendously. In addition, I would love to hear what you guys want to learn. If you have any fun trivia facts or want questions pertaining to certain topics, please leave that in your feedback or comment on any of ThinkCap's social media posts I always love to hear the feedback that you guys have, and I especially love asking questions that you guys particularly want to hear about. So, uh, once again, thanks for listening, and I will catch you next week. Take care.